Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be wondering what I'm doing here today when you've already got another pastor, but because you know he's not official yet, we can't really trust him to get in the pulpit to preach. (laughs) It's not until after he's uh, installed next week. But I think I was asked to come today because it's the beginning of uh, Lutheran Schools Week, and there's probably no one more Lutheran than me. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because I was born in the Lutheran Holy City. Not born there, but I grew up and lived in the Lutheran Holy City of Seward, Nebraska. (laughs) It was there that I went from kindergarten through eighth grade at St. John's Lutheran School. And then I walked across the street to go to Concordia Lutheran High School, which is on the campus of Concordia Teachers College at that time, now Concordia University. If that's not enough, I spent the next 18, 19 years teaching in Lutheran schools starting out in an elementary school where I served as a principal, athletic director, bus driver, coach of all sports, uh, and assistant organist, even though I am totally incapable of playing anything more than glory be to Jesus with two fingers. (laughs) After that, I went to Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, not St. Louis, sorry, but in the real seminary in Fort Wayne. And then embarked on about 32 years of being a pastor. My first church of all places was Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Belvedere, Illinois. And I arrived as the new pastor on the same day that our new principal showed up, Paul Baker. So I've had uh, the privilege, I'll use those words, and honor of knowing Paul and Jennifer for 32 years and count them as really great friends. I want to talk about a lesson I learned in Lutheran grade school at St. John's in Seward. It happened in my fifth and sixth grade years, and yes, in those days, there were actually two grades in the same room. Some of you probably can remember going to that one-room school where all 800 of you were in one room, and one teacher taught after you had walked 10 miles uphill in the snow to get there. But I had Mr. Schmeeding, Herman Schmeeding. Isn't that a great Lutheran teacher named Herman Schmeeding? And he was really a tough teacher, but he was really a great teacher. But I knew that you did not get out of his classroom without accomplishing one thing. And he was very forthright talking to the new fifth graders, although we knew by reputation no one got out of that fifth and sixth grade classroom without standing in front of that class and reciting the six chief parts for memory with no more than three mistakes. That's quite a challenge. I also learned in that classroom that we never sang a single hymn in church as a class by opening up a hymnal and looking at the words. We had to memorize those verses. Now, I'm going to tell you that memory was not a subject that I particularly cared for, but it provided a very solid foundation for years to come. But there's one other lesson I learned, and one day Mr. Schmeeding, who also was our church organist and choir director, said, open up your hymnals. We're going to sing a couple of songs to begin the day. And we started by singing Onward, Christian Soldiers, and then we sang Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And then Mr. Schmeeding walked in front of the class and said, how can you possibly sit there in your desk when we sing Onward, Christian Soldiers? Why are you not on your feet marching? And how dare you sit there? While we sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Now, I think he planned that. 
But believe me, we stood up and we marched in place as we sang Onward Christian Soldiers. And we stood as we sang, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Now, with that being said, I want to go to our text for today, which is from Ephesians chapter 613. It says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to do what? Stand your ground. And after you have done everything, do what? Stand. I don't know about you, but this is a fighter's verse. This, this is a warrior's verse. I mean, you can hear the sound of combat. You can almost uh, smell the smoke and, and hear the, the gunfire of a desperate battle. You can almost hear soldiers rushing into battle. And then at the end of this verse, there's victory. Now, I think Ephesians 6.13 ought to still be our battle cry today because it, it describes our situation. The evil day is upon us. We're in a battle, but we have the armor of God, and we are called to stand our ground and to fight to the end so that we might be standing when the day is done. Everything we need for battle is in this one verse. Now, about 15 years ago, I went on a mission trip to the Soviet Union, and I was asked to teach a class on spiritual warfare. Little did I know that people who living in Russia knew more about spiritual warfare than I did. It was there that I learned what it meant to pray warrior prayers. And these weren't sick prayers, praying for people who were sick or ill. These were prayers that were meant to put the devil in his place, to chase him out and make sure he never, ever came back. Somebody gave me a book when I went home, and it was called Overcoming the Adversary. It was written by a guy named Mark Bubeck. And in this book, he also challenged us to pray warrior prayers, to take our stand, to stand up for Jesus. Now, the question he asked in the book is, why does Satan seem to be so active in the world today? Now, I don't know how you'd answer that question. I think Satan is extremely active in today's world. But he gave three answers, and the first answer was this. Christians have neglected the whole realm of spiritual warfare. We don't even think of spiritual warfare anymore. We don't think of each day as being Christian soldiers marching as to war. In fact, some teachers have gone to extremes, and sadly some pastors have even shied away from the subject of spiritual warfare. And as a result, their people go to battle totally unprepared. There's a second reason. That's because Satan is active today because we're living in what we might want to call the last days. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, does anybody think we might be living in perilous times today? I don't tell you, I tell you, I, I, I did some kind of silly the other day. I went on my Facebook feed and I deleted every, every political comment, pro or con, Republican, Democrat, liberal, and conservative, and all I was left with was a little bit of sports and cat videos. (laughs) Now, we should not be surprised that Satan would redouble his efforts knowing, like the book of Revelation says, his time is short. But there's a third reason Satan is active because society has basically rejected God and embraced evil in some extremely radical ways. And when evil abounds, you can you can believe that Satan is having a real field day. Now, just in my lifetime, and, and actually it's, it's a pretty long lifetime, I have witnessed the 
spread of pornography from the back rooms to the front rooms. I have witnessed open satanic worship. I've seen widespread drug and alcohol abuse, and I have seen what seems like every form of sexual immorality you can imagine, and much of it on television and much of it in movies. And to that list, I would add legalized killing of the unborn and the sweeping redefinition of marriage and even what it means to be male and female. Friends, sin has always been with us. And let's understand, sin is not out there somewhere. Sin is sitting right here at Redeemer Lutheran Church. We were born in sin. We were conceived in sin. We just plain simple are sinful people. So sin has been with us and Satan has been active. But in the 21st century, it seems that we are more and more rejecting God and his word. And when you turn from God, the only thing left is to worship idols of your own making. Many of you probably know the Bible verse, Psalm 118:24. Maybe you've said it many times before, but it goes this way. This is the day the Lord has made. You know that passage? This is the day the Lord has made. But some people actually think what we ought to say, if we're going to be honest, is this is the Lord the day has made. I mean, what a perfect description of modern man and woman and their rebellion against God. What we've done is we've managed to remake God in our own image. Have you ever said, boy, I tell you, if I were God, this is what I would do? Uh, Believe me, you would never want me to be God. (laughs) I'd have that lightning bolt in one hand. (laughs) I'd just be looking for people to smoke. (laughs) So let's take a look at this verse. We're going to start with the warning in this verse. And the warning is this, when the day of evil comes. Now, notice Paul does not say if, does he? He's saying when it comes, it's more certain it's going to happen. Now, in looking at lots of other different versions, uh, I notice that most of them use that same phrase, the days of evil. But Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message translation, calls it evil in its present day of power. Now, I think it's very important to understand what Paul is trying to tell us this morning. He's saying that while every day has its share of evil, not every day is this evil day. See, there are moments in life when we feel the heat of battle in a big way. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. In those days when temptation flares up and when tempers grow short and friends turn their back on you and discouragement sets in, we feel like giving up. At a recent men's Bible study that I attended, College of the Ozarks, uh, we were talking about spiritual warfare, and somebody looked down at the table and they said, well, Doc, what do you think about the devil? And I said, well, I don't think he fights fair. You know something? He doesn't. He does not fight fair. Now, why should he? I mean, he attacks us in our weaknesses. He uses circumstances to discourage us. He tempts us to do things that we said we'd never, ever do. He hits us when we are alone and when we are vulnerable. So, yes, the day of evil comes sooner or later for all of us, and it comes again and again. Now, you and I, privileged to live in the United States of America here in the West, have largely been shielded from the kind of suffering that our brothers and sisters in places like Aleppo and in Somalia and Sudan and in India and China routinely face. Things like public abuse and legal restrictions and sometimes imprisonment and even death. But as it grows, 
I think all of us can be assured that it's bound to get worse for Christians in America as well as our society continues to become more and more secular. All one needs to do is take a look at church history, and it reveals a litany of where government-sponsored persecution and its rulers who do not understand, nor do they care about, and nor do they fulfill God's given purposes to them as leaders. One can only pray that our new leaders would turn to God for their direction. So when the persecution comes in America, we shouldn't necessarily expect our government to protect us. And cultural trends today show protection is not likely. That's why we as brothers and sisters in Christ, called to faith through the Holy Spirit, need to stand up and stand up for Jesus. See, the evil day will always come sooner or later. It's come again and again through church history. Nobody gets a free ride in this journey from earth to heaven. We in the West need to get tougher if we're going to survive what is coming our way. Now, maybe some of you are sitting there and you've said, I don't know, I've had a pretty good week. I've had a pretty good month. I've had a pretty good year. If that's you, I say, well, God bless you. Enjoy every blessing you receive, but take nothing for granted. In the battle for your soul, Satan will do anything and everything he can to take it. Let's take a look, though, at the second part of this verse. And what do you what do you do when the evil day comes? Well, very simply, it says, put on the whole armor of God. Now, when my grandson was maybe three or four, I bought him a T-shirt at a local Christian bookstore. And on the front of the T-shirt, it said, don't fight naked. You can imagine, I didn't send him to school that way, Paul. But on the back, it said, put on the whole armor of God. See, the Greek word here for put on is a military term. It was used for the very last thing a soldier did when he walked out into battle. When the call came, that soldier would grab his armor, put it on, and head into the fight. And our text is telling us that when evil days come, before we go into battle, we better be in full battle dress. Now, my personal opinion is too many Christians don't take this very seriously. That's why they end up getting clobbered again and again and again. So I'm going to tell you, put it on, leave it on, and resist the urge to fight naked. See, the armor of God really reminds us who our enemies are. It's kind of easy today to look at our world and arbitrarily label enemies. Many people, many of you maybe say our enemies are politicians. Or maybe they're entertainers or they're Muslim radicals who behead victims and then make videos uh, bragging about it. And when we see people fighting in favor of abortion or in favor of gay marriage or people who are marching against Christian values in the marketplace, it's easy to say, oh, those are our enemies. But Paul already said in the verse ahead of the verse we've already studied today, we are not fighting against flesh and blood. Paul was not leading a revolution when he wrote this against uh, Nero. Nero, the guy who burned Rome and then blamed it on the Christians and then who instigated a persecution of Christians across the empire, leading them to be tortured and and thrown to the lions and the guy who eventually had Paul uh, himself beheaded. But you see, friends, Nero was not the enemy. I'm going to take a step further. Guess what? Our president is not the enemy. No president has ever been the real enemy. 
And as wicked as people can sometimes be, he was just a tool, a tool of the real enemy. Satan and his forces of wickedness in the spiritual realm. That's who we battle against. Now, it's easy to hate terrorists for what they are doing to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East or in Africa. They intend to do much more, I'm sure, if they could ever get their foothold in our country. I want to be very clear that I I favor doing whatever we can do to stop ISIS or Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda or Al-Shabaab or whatever kind of other terrorist group you can come up with. But we must not view our, our, our political and ideological opponents as the ultimate enemy. Our enemy as Christians, as Christ followers, is invisible. He cannot be seen or felt. His armies move about in the spiritual realm. But this actually is a liberating perspective for us because it sets us free to love those people who hate us. See, if we believe what Paul is telling us in this verse, we can stand strong when the world mocks our faith. I mean, when they curse us, we don't have to respond in kind. If we put on the full armor of God, we're not going to be thrown off stride. Now, you might be asking, what is the armor of God? Well, you see a picture of it here. Ephesians 6, 14 to 17 answers the question. That armor has six parts. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, those shoes of the gospel of peace, <clears throat> the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now, those, those, that armor reminds us that our hope of victory rests on what? The character of of God. Now think about it this way. Behind the belt of truth stands who? The God of truth. Did you ever hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Even when Pilate said, what is truth? I'm surprised Jesus didn't say, you're looking at him. You're looking at truth. Behind that breastplate of righteousness stands the God of righteousness. Behind the shoes of the gospel of peace stands the Prince of Peace, the God of Peace, the God whose peace passes all human understanding. And behind that shield of faith stands the God who is faithful. Never will I leave you or forsake you. Even to the very end of the age, I will be with you. Behind this, the helmet of salvation stands the God of salvation. The God who loved each and every one of us so much that he would send his only son into this world to suffer, to die, and to rise again so that we will not be conquered by sin, death, or Satan. And behind the word of God stands the God of the word. Each and every day as I grow older, I am more convinced that the greatest tool we have is the word of God. Somebody asked me one time if I was a biblicist. And I said, yeah, I'm a lover of God's word. I just can't even imagine a day without arming myself with one of the greatest tools I could possibly have. So we don't fight alone and we don't fight in our own power. When we take up the divine armor, God fights for us. I mean, supernatural enemies require supernatural resources. So once again, I'm going to say, friends, put on that armor of God. Leave it on. And resist the urge to fight naked. Here's the third thing I want to point out in this verse. It's the result. I mean, if we put on the armor of God, what's going to happen? Well, here it is. You may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. 
So that phrase, stand your ground, speaks of hand-to-hand combat. Friends, no one ever said being a Christian is easy. Anybody who ever says that being a Christian is an easy thing is lying to you. I mean, that's a false statement. It's a dangerous statement. Now, I have no idea how any of you came to be a part of the army of God. For many of you, is when your parents brought you to the baptismal font and through the water and the word, you became a child of God and you really enlisted in this lifelong fight. Maybe you prayed a prayer one time after watching Billy Graham speak on television and said, this is the Jesus I went, I want. Maybe you came because of the influence of a praying mother or a grandmother or because it was the influence of a pastor or a Lutheran school teacher. I can't even begin to tell you how much influence I had, all the way starting back with Miss Mayor and Miss Clintworth and uh, Miss Grotlution and Miss Bartles and Mr. Schmeeding and Mr. Kaiser and Mr. Lemke and the whole litany of teachers I had who fortified my faith and taught me to arm myself for the battle. But it doesn't really make a difference how you signed up, friends. You're in the army now, as they say. You signed up for frontline duty in the army of God. And God does not have any desk jobs parked in the back that you can sit at while everybody else is out there. He said, we're all in this debat- in the battle. Now, there's some good news here and there's some bad news here. The bad news is nobody gets a break from the battle. We are under attack 24-7, 365, because Satan doesn't sleep. We don't have the luxury of sleeping spiritually either. But the good news is this. God has provided everything necessary that we need to fight and to win every battle we face. That last little phrase says, and after you're done, and after, after you've done everything, to stand. When I read that verse, I have this kind of mental picture of a soldier standing out in the battlefield. The conflict has just ended. It's been a long, hard, brutal fight with many casualties, many wounded, many people fallen. And he stands there and he surveys the battlefield. His uniform is soaked with sweat and dirt and blood. And his eyes are red-rimmed from exhaustion. And there are craters all around him where the artillery has chewed up the ground. He hears the cries yet of those people who've been hit. He does not smile because he knows the enemy will attack soon tomorrow. But that night he knows he will rest well because he was still standing when that day's conflict ended. Recently I read about the Marines who fought for years in Afghanistan. The author of the book said that in the unit he followed, the commanding officer would say, quote, they, meaning the Taliban, can start the fight any time they like, but we will finish it, end of quote. And that's exactly Paul's idea here, friends. We stand and we fight in Jesus' name, and when the smoke clears, we'll still be standing victorious on the battlefield. Back in 1858, there was a mighty revival here in our country. Anybody around at that time? Okay. No, neither was I. It was in Philadelphia in 1858. Uh, No leader was more prominent in that revival than a 29-year-old Episcopal minister whose name was Dudley Ting, T-Y-N-G, in case you want to spell it. He often spoke to large groups of men, and he encouraged them to stand firm in their faith, to stand up, to stand up for Jesus. In April of that year, he had a horrible 
accident while visiting a friend's farm. He got his arm caught in a corn threshing machine, and the arm was badly mangled and eventually had to be amputated. And after that, an infection set in, and he quickly died. But knowing he was dying, he gathered his family and friends together, and he told them, stand up, stand up for Jesus. And when those words were repeated at his funeral, they made an enormous impression on a pastor by the name of George Duffield. He was the pastor of Temple Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And the following Sunday, he preached a sermon in honor of his fallen colleague. And at the end of his sermon, he recited a poem that he'd written based on Dudley Ting's final words. That poem was later printed and put to music, eventually becoming one of the great gospel songs of all times. And you know this song. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It will not, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead. Till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. We're going to sing this at the end of service, but it's really the third verse of this song. And now that you know the story behind the third verse, you may never hear it again the same way. The third verse goes this way. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. And then, of course, there's that great triumphant verse that we're going to be ending our service with today. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. The day, the noise of battle, the next, the victor's song. To him that overcometh the crown of life shall be, he with the king of glory shall reign eternally. My brothers and sisters, the battles we face are not ours. They are the Lord's. Jesus won the greatest battle when he died and he rose again. And God intends for you to stand in victory at the end of the day, but it will not happen without a fight. See, the Christian life is a battlefield. It's not a playground. Christianity is not for those people who want to cut and run. It's a religion for strong men and strong women. See, the evil day may be upon us, but I'm not a pessimist. It's just time to put on the armor of God. Let's put on that armor and that belt of truth and that breastplate of righteousness and make sure that we're wearing those gospel shoes wherever we go. And to keep on our helmet of salvation and pick up that sword of, uh, shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. And let's charge into the battle. I don't know about you, but I think we were made for days like this. I can't wait to get out in the world again today. To get out of the safety of a holy huddle, if you will. To get out there and do battle one more time. Stand firm, God's word says, in the evil day. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus and the power of the Spirit and victory will be yours. Stand up. After all... Jesus stood up for you. May God bless you in the battle. Amen.